You are listening to the Hill Country Bible Church Podcast. To learn more about Hill Country Bible Church, including our gathering times, visit us online at hcbc.com. Please enjoy today's message. So glad to be with you guys today. Welcome to our Hill Country family. Maybe you're tuning in from one of our locations. We're glad you're with us. Or maybe you're tuning in from online somewhere around the world. Hey, look, we just hope that you are surviving this heat wave that's going on. Uh, In Texas, we call it summer. So (laughs) hope you're taking care of yourself. This summer at Hill Country Bible Church, we've been taking a summer vacation with God through this series called Summer in the Psalms. Each week, we have one psalm that connects to one particular situation and then one spiritual practice that we can use to stay connected with God throughout the week, wherever we are, with whomever we're with on our summer vacation. And so last week, Pastor Tim talks about connecting with God when you, when you need God's forgiveness. We were in Psalm 51. What an amazing psalm. And then this week, we spent some time just praying through that psalm, just unburdening ourselves before God's kind of like trash day, just trash day of the heart. It was amazing. Well, today we're going to be talking about connecting with God when I hunger for awe. If you have a Bible, turn to Psalm 66. We're going to be on Route 66 today. Psalm 66, if you have a Bible, turn there. If you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to go to the app store on your phone and just type in the Bible app. If you download it and do a quick setup, you can look for Hill Country Bible Church and just select it as your church and and click events and all the notes will be there. So do recommend use the Bible app. Now, by show of hands, how many of you, you love to look at at the mountains? Any mountain people? Like mountain views just feed something in you? For years, we lived high up in the mountains, and I loved it. For me, I'm a mountain dude. Like, it just feeds something in me. How many of you, by show of hands, are like, ah, mountains are cool, but I'm more of an ocean person. Ocean people, right? You just want to see the horizon, hear the waves, smell, uh, you know, the ocean breeze with the salt in the air. How about, uh, let's see, some of you are like, you know, I'm not really, mountains are cool, you know, oceans are fine, but I'm a stargazer. Stargazers here, like, just into, like, looking up at the stars. In fact, you're probably geeking out right now on the James Webb telescope photos that are pouring in, which are unbelievable. If you have a chance to look at those, uh, definitely do that. Don't do it during this hour, because Jesus is watching. (laughs) So don't do that. What all those experiences have in common, you know, stargazing, you know, mountains and ocean, what do they all have in common? What they all have in common is to connect with this reality known as awe, awe. Now, there's a growing body of research over the last two decades. Researchers are compiling more and more data around the human need for awe. Not just that humans like awe but that we actually need awe. We require awe. In other words, as human beings made in the image of God, we were meant and made with a, with a deep down need for awe. Now, according to researchers, when we have experiences of awe, two phenomena exist. Two. The first one is, is the perceived vastness. We see something that's big. We behold something large. Let's say you're standing at the Grand Canyon, perceived vastness, or maybe a skyscraper. You're like, whoa. Or maybe fireworks, you know, blowing off over your head, you know. The perceived vastness is the first phenomena, but following that is what they call the need for accommodation. In other words, you become really aware. You recognize your own smallness in light of this perceived vastness that you're seeing. In fact, the researchers describe one of the main results of experiences of awe 
is a sense of humility. It's almost like when we see this big awesome thing, we suddenly get a sense of humility about ourselves. In the early 1980s, when heavyweight boxer James Quick Tillis arrived in Chicago from his hometown of Tulsa, Oklahoma. He was interviewed by Sports Magazine later on. He, he told the story. Here's what he said. He said, quote, I got off the bus with two suitcases under my arms in downtown Chicago, and I stopped in front of the Sears Tower. Now it's called the Willis Tower, but at one point it was the tallest building in the world. And Tillis went on to say, I put my suitcases down. I looked up at that tower, and I said, I'm going to conquer Chicago. And when I looked down, my suitcases were gone. <laughs> Stolen. Turns out awe and humility really do go hand in hand. In fact, nobody, a wise person once said that nobody ever stands on the rim or the edge of the Grand Canyon and looks out and says, look how great I am. Nobody does that. These senses of vastness make us just become aware of our own humility. It turns out, friends, that, that these experiences of awe can never terminate on themselves. Now, others are not complete in and of themselves. They are pointers to point us to the only one who can fill our deep down need for awe, the only one big enough to satisfy the hunger and thirst in our soul, and that is God and God alone. And we're going to see how that plays out today in Psalm 66. So if you're a note taker, here's our big idea that we're going to see playing out in Psalm 66. The bigger your view of God, the better your view of everything else. The bigger your view of... How do you view God? The bigger your view of God, the better your view of everything else. Um, true or false? Sometimes life's challenges can just be bigger than you. True or false? Come on. I mean, it's true. There are times, I can tell you many times in my own life, that the current challenge I was going through just seemed bigger than my patience. Am I alone? I don't think so. Bigger than my own capacity. And I mean, truth be told, here's my confession for today. All too often, I've allowed the size of my problem to determine the size of my God. In other words, all too often, I, I see the size of my problem, and I let the problem, my view of my problem, determine the view of my God. When biblically speaking, our view of God should determine the size of our problem. So here's good news today. When your view of God is big, everything else, your view of everything else is right-sized, but there's a dark side to that. There's a flip side, and here's the bad news side. When your view of God is small, then your view of everything else is overblown, over-exaggerated. Scholar and pastor John Piper put it this way. He said, if you don't see the greatness of God, then all the things that money can buy become very exciting. If you can't see the sun, you'll be impressed with a streetlight. If you've never felt thunder and lightning, you'll be impressed with fireworks. And if you turn your back on the greatness and majesty of God, you'll fall in love with a world of shadows and short-lived pleasures. For many of us, that describes a lot right there, doesn't it? Truth be told, friends, what I need more than anything, 
what we need, what you need more than anything is to see God as bigger in your life. In fact, go ahead and join me. Take your hands. Go ahead, everyone, take your hands. Put them right out in front of you just like this. And you fill in the blank. Here it is. God, I need you to be big in my what right now? For some of you, it's your job situation. Or for many of you, maybe it's a relationship situation. It could be your marriage or your parenting, friendships. For some of us, it could be our mental health and our inner world. For some of us, it could be our, our recovery. God, I need you to be big in my recovery. Now listen, as we study the Psalms, as we do what the psalmists are doing, we grow a bigger and bigger vision of God. And we're gonna see how that plays out today in Psalm 66. Let's get a little background before we jump into this psalm here. There really are generally in the scriptures two basic or major types of psalms. The first one's a lament psalm. The second one's a praise psalm. Lament psalms are prayers of pain and anguish and confusion and anger that we bring to God as, a, as an act of faith, an act of worship, you know, just telling God all of these things and asking him to do something about it. Those are psalms of lament. We studied some of those. On the other hand, there are psalms of praise. These are prayers of joy and gratitude and celebration for who God is and what God has done. Psalm 66 is a psalm of praise. So if you look at the superscription above the psalm, it just simply reads, To the choir master, a song, a psalm. That's it. No historical information, no author information, no contextual clues, nothing. That's it. Now here's the thing. Psalm 66 is all about the greatness, the awesomeness of God. Yet it's vague enough so that it fits into whatever situation you're in where you just need God to be bigger. So today from Psalm 66, we're going to learn how to just get a fresh vision of how big God really is. So the psalmist is going to show us a few things today. And first of all, we're going to notice that the psalmist shows us that God is big enough for everyone. God is big enough for everyone. We're going to see that in the first seven verses. Now, let me see your hand if you raised some babies in your home. Anybody? You raised some babies? We had uh, three little baby boys, and now they're three gigantic men. So we've raised babies in our home. And in helping our children grow and develop, we used to play a game with our babies. I'm pretty sure you probably played this game too. Remember this game called So Big? Remember that game? You get the little baby right in front of you, you go, oh, how big is baby? And you go, so big. And then the idea is you want the baby to go, ah, right there with you. And the baby learns, and part of their growth and development is to mimic you, to do what you're doing. How big is baby? So big. The baby does it wrong. Ah. Here's a question. How big is God? The psalmist in the first four verses of this psalm is showing us that God is so big and he's doing it in such a way he wants us to join along and go. So Psalm 66, verses 1 through 4. Shout for joy to God all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises. They sing praises to your name, Selah. 
This word selah, you'll see it occur a lot in the Psalms, and we'll see it several times today. Selah simply means pause, reflect, let that sink in. Don't rush on. That's what it means. We're going to see this several times in the Psalm today. Notice the phrase there in verse 1, all the earth. In fact, that phrase occurs twice, verse 1 and in verse 4. Verse 1, shout for joy to God, all the earth. Verse 4, all the earth worships you. This term earth that occurs there twice in the Hebrew, it refers to the whole world and all of its inhabitants. The whole world and all of its inhabitants. So question, how big is God? Answer, Big enough for the whole world and all of its inhabitants. So let's chew on that for a minute. Let's selah on that. Let's think about the whole world. Our whole world is 24,901 miles in circumference. It's a pretty big world. Our whole world has a mass of 66 sextillion tons. That's 66 followed by 21 zeros. That's pretty big. And this whole world is flying around the sun at the speed of 64,000 miles per hour. That's a big world. The whole world. Now let's talk about the inhabitants. Our world is inhabited right now by 7.8 billion people. Yes, that's billion with a B. And these 7.8 billion people speak no less than 6,500 known languages. How big is God? He not only knows all these people and their names, he knows their language. How many languages do you speak? God speaks all of them. Uh, let me see your hand if you remember that song from Disney. It's a small world after all. You remember that song? It's a lie. Disney has lied to us. Can you imagine? Disney is, I wonder what else Disney's lying about. <laughs> it's a big world after all. And God's a big God after all. So the question, what are we supposed to do about this? Well, do you notice in the first four verses, shout in verse one, shout for joy to God. Verse two, sing to him, give praise to him. Verse three, say to him how awesome you are. Verse four, worship him, sing praise. Here's a question. Why is the whole world called to shout, sing, and say to God how great and awesome you are? Well, here's the answer. Because human beings, you, me, all of us, we were made to worship. We were made to worship. Not only were we made to worship, we automatically become like whatever it is we're worshiping. So help me out, nice and loud, true or false, everybody worships something, true or false. It's true. Our world is filled with praise. Lovers praise their lovers. Readers praise their favorite books. Players praise their favorite games. Music lovers praise their favorite artists. Moviegoers praise their favorite movies. We praise the weather. We praise the products that we love. We praise the celebrities. We praise our children. We praise our favorite, favorite sports team. Why is praise so universal and why is it so ubiquitous? It's a great question. C.S. Lewis actually speaks into this in a book that he wrote, and if you want to get credit for this course, you will have to read C.S. Lewis's book, Reflections on the Psalms. And in Reflections on the Psalms, Lewis wrote these words. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy 
because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. The delight isn't complete until it's expressed. That's really interesting. And that's what the psalmist is doing. He's completing his enjoyment by expressing how great God is, his praise of God. And he's hoping that you and I will join in too. Let's continue along. Notice verses 5 through 7. He invites us. He says, come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. Come, let us rejoice in him. He rules forever by his power. His eyes watch the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Selah. Don't rush on from that. What's going on here? The psalmist is inviting us. Come and see what God has done. His praise, his enjoyment of God isn't complete until he expresses it, and nor will mine, and nor will yours. And we all know how this works. Like, we do this all the time. If I show of hands, how many of you encountered something so funny, it hit your funny bones so hard, and there was no one to share it with? You picked up the phone and called somebody because you had to tell them how funny that thing was. We do this all the time. You see a funny meme, you're like, oh, I'm sharing this one right now. Or you see a hilarious video, you're like, ooh, how many people can I send this to? The reality is our enjoyment of anything is completed when we share it. So if you want to grow a bigger view of God, you've got to express the greatness of God out of our mouths. Psalmist gives us some really good advice about growing a bigger view of God. I didn't put these in your notes, but I figured you'd be able to follow along. Two things he tells us to do, good advice, you can write them down. First one, get outside your world. Notice that in verse 5, the psalmist, he points to God's awesome deeds toward the children of man. By show of hands, how many of you have ever been outside this country before? Right? I can tell you from my own experience, my travels outside this country to Latin America, South America, Central America, you know, um, Europe, Africa, every time I travel outside this country, my view of God gets bigger because I see that God is an awesome God doing awesome things in unfamiliar places. In fact, you don't even have to go outside the country, really. You can get outside your own world by just getting outside your own bubble and getting to know different culture people around you. Turns out God is doing awesome things in unfamiliar places to you. And if you were to tune into them, oh man, your view of God would grow. So get outside your world. Second thing he says, get inside your Bible. Get inside, you see that in verse 6? The psalmist recalls some historical acts of redemption that God did that are recorded in the Scriptures. He's referring to events in the Scriptures. The first one, he said that he turns the sea into dry land. He's recalling the Red Sea deliverance, the crossing of the Red Sea after God delivered the children of Israel from 400 years of Egyptian slavery. And you can read that event yourself, Exodus 14. But then also he recalls a second event. He says, passing through the river, not sea, river on foot. What river? Who are we talking about? We're talking about the second generation of those people, their children. God led them into the promised land by crossing the river Jordan. You can read all about that in Joshua chapter 3. So here's the point. Read the awesome things that God does in the Bible so that he can do those same things in your life. How do you get a bigger view of God? Get outside your world. Get inside your Bible. And here's the reality. 
God is so big that we can't fit our minds around it. You cannot screw the unscrutable. God's ways are just too big, and we need to be blown away by beholding the greatness and the awesomeness of God. Uh, 20th century novelist Evelyn Underhill wrote it this way. She said, if God were small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshipped. Do you have a view of God that allows mysteries to remain unexplained, that the ways of God are just bigger and better than anything you know, and you're like, I am good with that. That's a pillow I lay my head down on. Truth is, friends, the bigger your view of God, the better your view of everything else. And the psalmist is showing us that God is big enough for everyone, but secondly, he's showing us that God is big enough for anything. Verses 8 through 12, he's showing us God is big enough for anything. Now let me see your hand if you've ever heard of this phrase before. Fair-weathered friend. You ever heard of that before, anyone? You heard of that? A fair-weathered friend. It's typically a friend who's just like, when things are good, there they are. In fact, Urban Dictionary defines a fair-weathered friend this way, quote, a friend who's only around when they need you. Any of you know somebody like that? You're like, oh, you again. <laughs> now, reality is, friends, there are lots of people who relate with God like a fair-weather friend. When things are well, God is good. When everything's good, God is worthy to be praised. When all of our support systems are in place, we happily praise God, worship God, give thanks to God. But sadly, when things go bad, do things go bad in this life? Yes or no, do things go bad in this life? Yes. They, they do. Then what? Well, often we stop worshiping, we start worrying. We stop praising, we start pouting. We trade in a big view of God for a God so small that our, our problems are bigger than him. Walt Brueggemann is a biblical scholar, and one of his specialties is the Psalms. Like, he's the guy. And I just... I just think we need a little Selah moment on this statement from Brueggemann. He said, much Christian piety and spirituality is romantic and unreal in its positiveness. Much Christian piety and spirituality is romantic and unreal in its positiveness. But such a way not only ignores the Psalms, it's a lie in terms of our own experience. Friends, life is hard. And the psalmist shows us how to experience the goodness of God, how to develop a big vision of God right in the midst of those very, very messy, complicated, and difficult seasons of life. So a few things the psalmist is going to show us. You can write these down first of all. He's going to show us here that God is big enough for any trials. He's big enough for any trials. Look at verse 10. Notice in verse 10 the psalmist says, For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. I want to draw attention to those three words. Did you notice them? Tested, tried, and tried. They all have something in common. A process. A process called refining. This is a process that you use to strengthen metal. Refining involves three basic things. Intense heat, 
extraction of impurities and time. And so according to the psalmist, when God sets out to strengthen you, he wants to make you strong. When he sets out to strengthen you, he turns up the heat. Why? So that the junk in your life and in your character can come to the surface and be known and addressed. Why? So that he can make you strong. And he's going to leave you in that for time. Now listen, there's some of you, and you're in the furnace right now. Maybe you're in a job situation. You just want out. But there isn't an out. Not right now. God has you right where he wants you. He wants to make you strong. Some of you, maybe you're going through some challenges in your own mental health. You just want it to just end, but it hasn't ended. You're seeing junk like rising up, and God wants to address that junk. He wants to make you strong. And so the psalmist is showing us that God is big enough for any trials. Now, we prefer God to be big by preventing trials, but God prefers to be big by strengthening us in those trials. So God is big enough for any trials, but secondly, God is also big enough for any troubles. He's big enough for any troubles, verses 11 and verse 12. Let's continue on. The psalmist says of God that you brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs, and you let men ride over our heads. Now let me see your hand if you've ever had the experience of life where it feels like life it's getting out of control. Have you been there? You feel like it's out of control? I will tell you, for me, the end of my control is the beginning of God's control. I don't like that place, but it's a good place. Notice the verbs here in verse 11. You brought, you laid, you let. Who's he talking about? He's talking about God. And he's talking to God. So clearly, even though the troubles are out of control, God is still in control. In fact, look at the list of troubles in verse 11 and 12. Trouble number one, into the net. That's an experience of feeling trapped. And some of you, you know that experience, feeling trapped. That's troublesome. A second trouble, he said, crushing burden. The heaviness of life coming down on you, crushing burden. Some of you know that. That's troublesome. The third one, he said, you let men ride over our heads. What's that all about? I don't know. Picture men riding over your heads. I like people trampling on you to hurt you. And this is exactly what, listen, we want God to be big by keeping us from trials and troubles. But God wants to be big by keeping us through trials and troubles. The psalmist is showing us that God is big enough for any trials. He's big enough for any troubles. And then thirdly, he's saying that God is big enough for any terrors. Any terrors. Notice, again, we're in verse 12. At the end of verse 12, the psalmist says, We went through fire and water, yet you have brought us out to the place of abundance. Notice those words there, fire, water. By show of hands, how many of you think fire's dangerous? By show of hands, how many of you know someone's afraid of water? Mm -hmm. We all have our fears. But here's the problem. So often our fears can grow so big that they're bigger than God and keep us from what God has for us. So what's the solution? The solution is God will often lead us to our fears so that he can lead us through our fears. Now, if you just pause for just a second, go, wait a minute. Why would God do this? Why would God make us 
come to the place of facing trials and troubles and terrors? Why would he take us to this? And the answer is in verse 12. At the end of verse 12. The end of verse 12, notice the point. So that he might bring you out to a place of abundance. In the Hebrew, this word abundance means overflow or satisfaction. All in favor of getting to the place of overflow and satisfaction. How do we get there? Well, it turns out we get to the place of abundance through two verses that I skipped over. Did you notice that? Some of you are like Bible sword drills. You're like, here's working our way along. We seem to have skipped a couple of verses. We did. We did skip them. Because it turns out, friends, verses 8 and 9 are how you get to verse 12. We get to a place of abundance through verses 8 and 9. Remember, this comes before all that. Here it is. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our foot slip. Notice those words, bless and praise. What are they? These are worship words. Turns out, friends, listen, worship is the way through trials, troubles, and tears. Worship is the way through those things, and worship is the way to the place of abundance. Verses 8 and 9 are how you get to the goal in verse 12. So in other words, friends, worship is the way through. Now some of you might say, you know what, man, I'm just... I'm just not really very good at like the worship thing. Listen, I'm with you, man. I I relate with you. All through my journey with Jesus, there have been seasons one after another where Jesus reveals to me, you're like a fair-weathered friend, dude. When things are great, you're like, oh, God's great. Everything gets really hard, and you're like, oh. And he's like, I'm same God. In fact, I'm actually working here. I'm I'm doing something. And friends, when you find yourself at a place where you're like, man, I don't know, I don't know how to do the worship. That's what the Psalms are for. That's what they're for. They're written to a gritty, difficult place so that we can engage with God from that place with appropriate prayers. In fact, Thomas Merton summed it up perfectly when he wrote these words. He said, God has taught us to praise him in the Psalms, not in order that he may get something out of this, but in order that we may be made better by it. Imagine that, God leading you through circumstances of trial, troubles, tears, so you've got to depend on him, and he's your only resource, and he's just getting bigger and bigger, and on the other side of that is a place of abundance that you've always dreamed. Turns out, friends, that the bigger your view of God, the better your view of everything else. And the psalmist has shown us God is big enough for everyone. God is big enough for anything. And thirdly, the psalmist is showing us that God is big enough even for me. Notice verses 13 through 20. God is big enough even for me. So let me just ask the question, what good is it? What difference does it make if God is big enough for everyone? If God is big enough for anything, but I don't believe he's big enough for me. What good would that do? What good would that do for God to be big and awesome and amazing, but you don't believe he's big and awesome and amazing for you? Well, it turns out that the psalmist has been steering toward me personally 
all through this song. And he's been steering toward you, too. How so? Well, let me show it to you this way. So everyone, uh, please follow my lead, okay? Here's what we're going to do. Everyone is going to follow my lead. So first of all, um, I need my person. So here's my person. You're my person. Are you okay with being my person? Cool. You're my guy. All right. So this, I got my person. Now I need my section. So this is my section right here, okay? Just right here in the middle, right to the cameras. That's my section. And then there's everybody else. Now listen, if, if, if you're joining us from another location or online, here's the goal for you. Just listen. I want you to hear. Hear what's happening. So here's what we're going to do. Everyone, on the count of three, we're going to have the entire room, the whole room, we're going to applause and keep applauding, keep clapping until I tell you something different, okay? So here we go, count of three, everyone applaud and keep doing it until I stop you. So here we go. One, two, three. Keep going. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Keep going. Keep going. All right? Now just my section. Now, just my guy. That's what this psalm is doing. This psalm begins with the whole earth and everyone. And the psalm moves to the common experiences of us all that we go through every day. But the psalm is meant to land with you personally. Psalm 66, verses 13 through 17, the psalmist says this. He said, I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you. That which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. You ever done that? Make promises in trouble? Verse 15, I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals with smoke and the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats, Selah. Verse 16, come and hear all who fear God, and I will tell what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. What's going on here? We're going to draw our attention, verse 13, to the statement, I will come into your house. The psalmist is talking about gathering together for corporate worship with God's people at the temple in Jerusalem. And he's talking about bringing sacrifices, as you do in the Old Covenant. But notice how personal this is. He uses the word I seven times. I will come in. I will perform the vows. I will offer. I will tell. Notice also he uses the word my six different times. He's like, my vows, my mouth, my soul, my tongue. What's going on here? Here's what's going on. The psalmist is bringing his worship to the house of God. He's not expecting to go find his worship at the house of God. He's bringing his worship to the house of God. The worship that grew in the everyday stuff of life's terrors and trials and troubles and worshiping God there, that's what he brings to the gathering of God's people. And so often we do it the other way. 
We don't have any of that over there because it's not supposed to be that way, which is romantic and unreal and unbiblical. And then we show up like it's supposed to magically fall out of the sky. Now listen, if you're new to the whole corporate worship thing, awesome. You can start there. But it's not a great place to stay. God is a big God. For our everyday trials and terrors and troubles, he is at work. And we are to bring to the house of God the worship that we grew and developed in the everyday complexities and messes of life. So why all the emphasis on worship, praise, vows, and offerings? Why? Because a big God deserves big worship. And big worship isn't formed in an hour. It's formed in the everyday stuff of life. Experiencing the living God as a reality. Apologist Cliff Connect will put it this way. I want to see what he said. He said, when you have a big vision of God, you make a radical commitment to him. You don't make a radical commitment to a small, provincial God. You make a radical commitment to the creator of the heavens and earth who love you. How do I know I have a big vision of God? Big commitment to God. What does that look like? Man, I don't know. How do you define radical? I don't know. But let me tell you how I would define radical. Not convenient. If your relationship, your commitment to God is convenience-based, that's not radical. But once I step beyond convenience, now we're in radical territory. Now we're starting to think about the God who's big enough for anything and everything. And the psalm concludes verses 18 through 20. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he's not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. Psalm 66 begins in verse 1 with all the earth, and it comes to a rest with the last word, me. Imagine that. The God of the universe, the creators of heaven and earth, he is so big, and he wants to respond to little old me. He wants to relate to little old me. He wants to walk and transform little old me, and he wants to do the same to you. In the Old Testament, worship of God involved the sacrifice of animals to cover sins, the Old Covenant. Those sacrifices had to be repeated because that covering of sin was temporary. But in sending his own son into the world, Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. The sinless Son of God took all the sins of the world upon himself. He paid for us. He took our sins into the grave, and then he conquered them by rising from death. And three days after the cross, Jesus rose from the grave, and now he offers forgiveness of sins permanently and new life and his very own spirit to come and live inside all who come call upon him. So now we don't relate with God through a system. We relate with God through a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. And in him, we don't have to be great because he's great. We just get to be grateful.
So how do you grow a bigger view of God? Well, here's our spiritual practice we could take this week. Here it is. Why not, why not do what the psalmist did? Like Psalm 66, create your own list of the great things that God has done in your life. It could be a list of three, five, seven, dozen, nine, I mean, whatever number you like. Create that list. Why not do that? Create your own list of the great things that God has done in your life, and then take some time and praise him out loud for each one. I know it sounds kind of hokey, but who cares? Do it anyway. And extra points, bonus points, if you tell someone else some of the great things that God has done for you. Then your enjoyment will be made complete, but not until then. In his children's series, The Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis traces the adventures of a group of children who enter the enchanted land of Narnia through the back of a wardrobe. Maybe you've read Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. Well, in Narnia, one of the heroes, Lucy, she meets a majestic lion named Aslan, who represents Jesus. And on a return visit later, Lucy meets Aslan after a time of being away. Only this time, she's surprised by how much bigger Aslan looks. And so here's their interaction. Aslan said to her, welcome, child. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That's because you are older, little one, said Aslan. Not because you are, replied Lucy. I am not, said Aslan. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Let me ask you, are you growing? Are you growing? Are you through the furnace of everyday trials and troubles and terrors, are you growing in your experience of this great and awesome God? Let's pray together. Father, we acknowledge that you are always bigger than our current understanding of you. We will never understand it all, and for that we say hallelujah, amen. All too often, though, we function like fair-weather friends. Things are good and we're all about you. Things turn bad and we let the romantic and unreal notions we learn from other places become our vision and we wonder where you went. And our prayer today is in the midst of the furnace of the trials, the troubles, whatever we're going through today, we choose to bless your name. We choose to say you are great, you are good, you are in control, have your way. And as we look to you, will you strengthen our hearts, will you enlarge our vision, will you lead us to a place of abundance through your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray and everybody said, amen. amen. Thank you. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcasts. To hear other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at hcbc.com. And again, thanks for listening to the Hill Country Bible Church Podcast.